In this episode, I'm once again joined by Tibetologist, author, and Tantric Buddhist Lama, Glenn Mullen. Glenn explains the four classes of Buddhist Tantra, Kriya, Charya, Yoga, and Anuttara Yoga, including their history and development, and what distinguishes them from each other in practice and view. Glenn reveals the structures of each level of Tantra, compares their creation and completion stage practices, and discusses the possible Persian origin of the Bern and Yingma schools and their classification systems. Glenn also guides a walkthrough of the Kriya Tantra practice of Avalokiteshvara, using his own translation of the third Dalai Lama's practice text to illuminate each step. So without further ado, Lama Glenn Mullen. Glenn Mullen, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much. So it's been about seven months since our last interview, and I know you've been up in the gas bay for most of the last year, in fact, working on your uh, book on Nicholas Rurik and doing a lot of Zoom teaching. First of all, how's it been and what have you been up to? <laughs> yeah, well, after my American tour, my annual sort of 25, 30 city US tour last year, uh, in uh, 2020, which went from mid-January until uh, end of May. By, I would say, mid-April, a big travel began to shut down international travel. And I was supposed to lead a trip to Kailash in May, which we immediately postponed until this year, hope, thinking perhaps the COVID will slow down. This year it didn't slow down, so <laughs> that basically also fell apart. But at the end of that, I couldn't go back to Asia, my little apartment in Seoul, and couldn't lead the Kailash journey. And also every year in spring, I've been taking an acupuncture group to the Buddhist communities of, the, of Nepal, the north of Nepal to do uh, free medical clinics and we had to cancel that. Mm. So I had to decide what to do. So I thought for several years now, I've been wanting to come back to my birthplace, which is on the East coast of Canada, little town called Gaspé, a Mi'kmaq Indian word, Mi'kmaq Indians from the Chick-Chock Hills as they're known, meaning the end of the earth or land's end. And I've been wanting to come back and spend a winter here for quite a few years. So last year in June, I thought, well, I'll come up and spend a few months here. And a few months became a few more months. And then COVID had a second wave and then a third wave. <laughs> and now it's on its fourth wave. So um, there is some talk things might improve in the next month or two, but Anyway, as a result of that, I came here and I thought, well, I'll do a writing retreat. I'll do a book on Nicholas Rurik, the great uh, Russian-born New York artist who was the first Buddhist to be nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize <laughs> back in 1929, I think it was. So I came here then and rented, rented a little cabin in the forest. After a few months there, I found a very nice little apartment in a high school friend's home that uh, is a rental and it overlooks the sea. So I spent the winter here with waking up 
each morning with a beautiful view of the sea and uh, snow in my driveway. <laughs> and uh, the book has come along slowly. Meanwhile, I do maybe, I don't know, six, eight, ten webinars a week with different students and groups around the world. And also work on one or two other projects that sort of, you could say, have been on the back burner for some time. Mm. Like what? Anything worth mentioning? Well, main one I'm working on right now is, as I mentioned in a, just a moment ago, for the last few years, I've been taking an acupuncture sort of naturopath healing group to Buddhist Nepal, the Buddhist regions of Nepal annually. And uh, we brought along a professional filmmaker on the last, last run. So looking at making a, maybe a 45 or a 50 minute documentary film out of that, going through those dozens of hours of video footage, <laughs> coming up with the best footage and a sort of an interesting storyline. Uh, also, I have to look at other projects. I've got two or three books going into foreign languages, and that always takes a fair amount of work. And because the international book market has changed a lot in the last 20 years, you could say, partly because of internet and pirating and all that. Often foreign translations, they want to cut the length. Books that used to be very popular at three or 400 pages, now they like at a 150 to 200 pages. Books that have been very popular at 200 pages, they now want at a, at a 100 to 125 pages. <laughs> So figuring how to edit down editions in that way is a little bit, hmm. take everyone, every time that happens, takes you know, better part of a week or so to uh, sort through and give advice to the translator on how to capture the essence of that book and still uh, make it a, a, a substantial, um, breakfast of champions <laughs> yeah very interesting well we've covered in the many episodes that we've recorded quite a lot of ground and especially on the completion stage practices or tsongkrim practices specifically six yogas of naropa and six yogas of naguma of course we covered many other things also but that was the the main thrust i think of at least the first several episodes in this episode, I'd like to focus on the classifications of Tantra in the Tibetan Buddhist system, as well as discuss a bit more about the generation stage or Kirin practices. I'll be quoting from your book, The Heart of Chen Rezig, Dalai Lama's on Tantra. Which earlier came out as a hardcover book with Snowline. So Shambhala re brought that out as a paperback in that with a retitle. That's right. And I strongly suggest people get this. It's a collection of translations of different Dalai Lama's writings on themes of, of Tantra with the translator's preamble, as it's called, your introduction to each of the texts. I think just reading those introductions and uh, quite is quite informative uh, in itself. And then, of course, there are the texts that you've translated as well. So in that book, you write, there are four classes of Tantra. And each class has various individual tantric systems within it. Each of these tantric systems is represented by a tantric deity and also by its own mandala. 
In fact, each of the individual systems is a complete recipe for enlightenment, a complete way in and of itself. So I'm wondering if you could tell us what are the four classes of Tantra? What's their history in terms of their development? And what distinguishes them from each other in terms of practice and view? Yeah, I think originally Buddha didn't talk about four classes of Tantra. Um, Buddha just taught various Tantras to various disciples. And so when we say development, my I prefer to follow the classical lineage interpretation rather than go the direction of Western scholarship, which learned about Buddhism in Sri Lanka and therefore saw anything non-Sri Lankan as a later development of Buddhism. So in the tradition, we say Buddha taught uh, many, many tantras to various disciples. And usually these were taught as something that would be maintained in secret, if you will, or discreet, discreetly until the time of their usefulness came into focus. So according to prophecy, Buddhism will last 5,000 years. And one of the reasons for that 5,000 year sustaining power, <laughs> if you will, <laughs> is this manner in which um, Buddha sort of created little, should we call them time capsules? <laughs> sort of like little, little energy transmissions, uh, each to be, each mailed, you could say, to a different date in the future, <laughs> to be delivered on, blah, 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 like back in January when you order flowers for your girlfriend's birthday in September, because you don't want to forget it when September comes, but meanwhile, the company has it on their computer for those nine months, and then September, it gets delivered on time, even though you forgot you had ordered them. <laughs> so the, the Buddhist attitude is something like that. Buddha taught many levels of teaching. Sometimes we classify those into three, three levels, outer, inner, secret, and the outer being basically the three higher trainings, Noble Eightfold Path, 12 Links of Dependent Origination, the inner being the Mahayana, the Prajnaparamita, the Avatamsaka, and the secret, the Tantric path. So Western, uh, Western scholarship generally tends to think of the first being early Buddhism or original Buddhism and the other two later developments. Buddhist masters, lineage holders, great, great beings do not and have never had that particular opinion of things, that particular take, and they don't. I mean, we may have some lamas now educated in the West who are picking it up, but uh, it's not there in any of the classical literature or classical transmissions. And so I always address these issues from the classical perspective, the lineage holder perspective, not from uh, opinions of Western uh, academics. 
Now, Buddha taught many hundreds of tantras. Sometimes in the text, we'll see tens of thousands mentioned. <laughs> and so we don't really know how many because you know, Buddhists love to poetically embellish. But as time passed in India, uh, if we take something like, say, the Tara Tantra, which is very, very popular with Tibetans, Mongolians, uh, all of the Himalayan world, all the way up to the Altai Mountains and uh, Siberia, that uh, Buddha taught the Tara Tantra to a small group of disciples as something to be transmitted quietly until the times had ripened for their practice. Similarly taught the, say, Avalokiteshvara, the Shenrazi Tantra, the Vajrapani Tantra, the Manjushri Tantra, Amitayas. And then uh, other, so other very complex Tantras like Guya Samaja, Kala Chakra, um, Chakra Samvara, and so forth. And I don't know if there's any direct reference from root tantras. I've never heard of it and never seen it quoted in any tantric commentary saying, and then Buddha spoke this Kriya Tantra or this Charya Tantra, this Yoga Tantra, this Anuttara Yoga Tantra. I think the classification into four happens quite late in Indian Buddhist history, late meaning 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, those kind of centuries. Uh, and they really came because uh, the big Buddhist monasteries were always looking to sort of create a kind of a encyclopedia Buddhistica. <laughs> <laughs> They're always trying to sort of shelve things, so to speak, and uh, sort of put Library of Congress <laughs> code numbers on them. And so somewhere along the line, and we're not exactly sure when, there's uh, debates amongst different uh, Tibetan Buddhist scholars, but somewhere along the line, the Indian masters uh, started to recognize four principal qualities, differences between the various dozens of tantras taught by the Buddha transmitted through these small private line lineages, if you will, discreetly transmitted. In those days, it's often said no more than three lineage holders, three um, disciples were allowed to hold those lineages at any one time until the prophesied public presentation, public dissemination perhaps, became uh, signified by omen, <laughs> initiated by mystical omen and dream. And of course we see in Tibet, Guru Rinpoche sort of continues that with his terma or treasure text tradition. Many things that we say, Padmasambhava taught this, Padmasambhava taught that. And uh, often it's a treasure that 
emerges a thousand or more years later. So in this way, the various tantras came up. And then, uh, yeah, this uh, later classifiers, people gathering the tantras into packages, if you will, <laughs> uh, started to classify into four categories. Now, at the time that happened, highest yoga tantra, Guya Samaja, was very, very popular, as was Chakra Sambara. And so they put that classification in a kind of a highest yoga tantra secret code language, <laughs> which is, doesn't mean a lot to your average listener in terms of meaning, although the symbolism, the metaphor is easy to understand. Why something is in one category and not another is not so easy to understand. So the classical metaphor is the Kriya Tantra is like a young man walking through the busy marketplace and seeing a young lady with whom he has a deep karmic romantic connection. And there's kind of an exchange of glances. Their eyes touch as they pass in the market. <laughs> <laughs> and a great bliss and joy kind of roll over both of them. They both notice the spark, so to speak. And so the next time they sit up and they just keep walking. They don't take it any further. So Kriya Tantra practice is a bit like that in terms of the clarity and joy that it works with. You could say something like that, that is utilized in that yoga. And with uh, Charya Tantra, it's a bit like, well, then next time they see each other, they remember that sort of flash, that uh, connection. And so they stop and pause and they talk and they laugh a little bit together. Ha, 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 hoo, nice to see you again. Ha, 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 hoo, hoo, hoo. <laughs> and that kind of joy and sense of harmony, if you will, or sense of closeness, integrity, the oneness of the universe, <laughs> the basic goodness of being, <laughs> is hops up a notch. So um, Charya Tantra is talking about how you utilize that mental space yogically and in meditation. And then yoga tantra, again, they meet sometime later and it goes beyond talking and laughing and maybe just touching hands like innocently, like just experimentally, like, oh, ha, 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 <laughs> touch your hand. <laughs> and now they actually kiss and pet a little bit. <laughs> and that's like yoga tantra. And then the metaphor says, so well, in yoga tantra, we're working with that deeper sense of physical pleasure or joy and that deeper sense of the basic, thrilling, wonderful quality of being. And then the fourth Anuttara, highest yoga tantra, is like making love when they finally 
get past those first three steps and they make love. And at the point of the mutual explosion into the orgasmic state. <laughs> so that, that the metaphor for the four classes of tantras is put in that kind of language. Now this comes from Guya Samajata. You know, this is based on the way Guya, the kind of language used by the Guya Samaja Tantra, the Chakra Sambara Tantra, both of which are known in, in Tibetan as Begyu, hidden meaning tantras. In other words, it talks in a kind of a secret code. So if you take a Kriya Tantra like Tara, Shenrazi, Majusri, and you look at it like, how is that like exchanging glances? <laughs> Or Acharya Tantra, how is that like laughing and talking and touching hands? And the yoga, how is that like kissing? <laughs> and highest yoga, how is that like making love? That's a hidden Tantra meaning. So that's another issue altogether. And we don't see a lot of discussion of that, I would say. Uh, if we put it another way, the sometimes these three at the first end of things, the exchanging glances, uh, talking and laughing and kissing, those are sometimes referred to as the ogyu, the lower tantras or the underneath. Og means below something. <laughs> and the fourth level is called the lamegyu, peerless or unrivaled, not, nothing above. Tantra. So sometimes they put in those two categories. And uh, doing so is based again on the kind of language used in the Chakrasambhara and, and Guya Samaja Tantras, the hidden meaning Tantras, which are written in this kind of secret code language, with a lot of the code being sort of sex and violence, you could say, sex and violence. Uh, based uh, a code of sex and violence in the sense that our male energies, male energy tends to be violent. Men like, you know, there's an expression, your average Scotsman is only at peace when he's at war. Oops, you're Scots. The average Irishman is only at peace when he's what? <laughs> in, in Tantra, we say the male energy, and if you're a male or a female, it doesn't matter because you still have a mom and a dad and grandmas and granddads and so on. Your male side is this aggressive side and the instinct to dominate and to use whatever is necessary to dominate. And of course, violence is one of the most direct methods you could say. <laughs> and the female is the deep instinct to nest, to make babies, to procreate and to have peace and, and happiness and joy so the kids don't get, you know, orphaned at a young age or killed off at a young age. And myself as a man, from my male side, I'll have that instinct. And from the female side, I'll have that instinct. I'll have both sides going for me. So highest yoga tantra is largely uh, transmitted through this kind of very sexually charged, if you will, male-female uh, uh, linguistic and therefore is called hidden meaning because what does it boil down to in actual practice and this is always of course something in the 
oral transmission and in the practice. And as one, the way one learns it, master to student or hierophant to initiate. <laughs> as I, in that passage, which you read, so when Buddha taught a Tantra, uh, then uh, a Tantra has the name of a particular Buddha form, which is the main practice, such as Tara, Manjushri, and so forth. It has a mandala, which is the object of meditation. It has the mantras associated with it. And another name for Tantra is Guya Mantrayana, the path of secret mantras. It'll have an initiation ceremony in which it is transmitted from one generation to the next. And then it'll have a, an instruction on practice, which in the Ogyo, the lower tantras are often just called Rimba Tampa or Rimba Nipa, first stage, second stage. The first stage being a kind of a sadhana with a mandala and mantra practice. And the second stage being in, uh, so in lower tantra, that first stage is off some called sempain now, or the yoga of signs or symbols. And in highest yoga tantra is called the visualization stage or a creative, cre uh, creative imagination stage, kirim in Tibetan. Sometimes we translate that as generation stage because kepa just means to be born or to generate. What is it that is born? What is that what generate? We generate an image of our um, already enlightened nature, <laughs> something like that. In the lower tantras, that second stage is just called semenya, or the yoga with no symbols, no signs. A simple kind of vipassana, zen, um, mahamudra, something like that. In fact, sometimes the second stage in Kriya is called Kriya Mahamudra. Charya Tantra, Charya Mahamudra, and so forth. Uh, that word is, that terminology is sometimes used. Highest Yoga Tantra, the first stage of, of the hidden tantras is uh, generating the mandala. And in particular, noticing how one's own ultimate nature is always clear light mind, formless clear light mind. Even when we're looking at a very busy scene, like say we're in the middle of a boxing match, like the uh, so, um, Canelo, uh, Billy Joe Sanders boxing match that took place two weeks ago in Texas <laughs> in a crowd of 75,000, 73,000 people. <laughs> Even though many states are under lockdown, boxing fans can step above such hysteria. <laughs> Even in such a place, such a busy environment, two boxers in the middle of a ring, one punching at the other with full force, crowd of 73,000 people yelling continually through the whole thing, lights everywhere. Uh, your coaches yelling instruction and your trainers telling you do this and do that and the referee saying, step back, step in, don't bunch. Keeping all of that together, one has to come to that from the place of the utter clarity of one's own mind. So the first stage of generation stage is noticing how one's own essential nature, one's own essence is beyond all form, beyond time, beyond space, uh, beyond any 
aspect beyond aspect aspectification <laughs> and the second coming out of that into sambhogakaya that when one comes out of when one comes into the world of form with a sense of one's infinity nature in highest yoga tantra we say your clear light nature which has these three qualities of bliss uh, physical so, uh, these three qualities of yeah great bliss great radiance and zero duality <laughs> uh, zero duality a woman comes out of formlessness with those three qualities into a world of form. One experiences that form in a kind of a very joyful, radiant, clear way. So it's called Sambhogakaya, learning to experience the world of form on the basis of bliss, radiance, and unity, oneness, if you will. Non-duality in English being kind of confusing to people think, oh, no hot, no cold, no good, no bad, no difference between killing and saving alike and so on. And thirdly, sometimes one gets in rough situations and there's very difficult encounters. So say for instance, a boxer, Canelo versus the great British Irish gypsy, Billy Joe Sanders. <laughs> in the middle of the ring both in paused in the emptiness and then they come out and they notice they've got 73,000 fans cheering them and probably 10 million watching worldwide all cheering them and then they feel good this is really wonderful isn't life grand here I am being paid to just stand in this ring and get 10, 20, 30 million dollars just for smiling and looking handsome. <laughs> That's kind of Sambhogakaya, if you will. The, the basic pleasure of being in the world of form. Then comes the Nirmanakaya immersion. Well, there's goods and bads, ups and downs, pleasures and pains, pleasant, unpleasant. <laughs> How to maintain your clarity and the joy. And when you're at the high end, not to become inflated by your billions of dollars you've made or great accomplishment of winning the boxing match or whatever. And when you're on the low end, you just went bankrupt. Like wasn't it the Irish banker who also owned an, uh, an airline and had a mortgage business and he became the richest man in England about 20 years ago. And then suddenly, his uh, real estate investments. He was insuring his own real estate investments. So when real estate went down, he, he was paying himself for his losses. So both went bankrupt. <laughs> and he went from the richest man in Ireland to the poorest man in Ireland. <laughs> so how do we hit rock bottom and still maintain those three qualities of joy, radiance, and a sense of harmony or goodness? So generation stage is really talking about how to do that as kind of a yoga of rehearsing that on our meditation mat, if you will. And then using mantra, meditation, focus, um, very particular techniques to be able to do that. So generation stages like that in highest yoga tantra. Then in completion stage, of course, it's the chandali or the tumo, the Buddhist kundalini as I like to call it. 
So those cl four classes of Tantra, each, each transmitted in its own lineage and with its own line of gurus going back to the Buddha, as we always say in the tradition. And uh, when they're kept alive, they continue into the future. Each has to be maintained as a living tradition. And if a tradition ends, one lineage, it cannot be revived just through literature or just through academic knowledge. It has to be, it's called lung, which actually means breath. It has to be transmitted by the breath of a living lineage holder. And fortunately today, you know, Tibet managed to receive most of these tantric lineages at the time of the Muslim invasions of India when Buddhism in India was destroyed and many Indian Buddhist masters, tantric masters ran to the Himalayas and in Tibetan Buddhist masters, Tibetans received them with great regalia and enthusiasm. And from that time until today, have, uh, they've preserved many, many of those lineages, most of those lineages, I would say. Some also traveled across the Silk Road and came down into China, up to Mongolia, and uh, went in other ways to other countries. But Tibet being located to the immediate north of India became the major recipient, we could say of outer, inner and secret Buddhism of all uh, three forms of Buddhism because of its close proximity. And of course, from about 630 AD, so, you know, 1400 years ago or so, uh, Tibet was uh, declared itself to be officially an Indian Buddhist cultural satellite. <laughs> you know, translations from Kashmiri or Cotonese or Tangut or Chinese or Mongolian were not allowed anymore in Tibet. They had to be translated from Indian Sanskrit. So as a result, Tibet became this great repository of what Dalai Lama likes to call Sanskrit Buddhism, but which we, we, nev we never see that said in any traditional Tibetan text, but it's a fair, fair name for it. It's a reasonable name for it. But we could say really of outer, inner and secret forms of Buddhism as they unfolded in India. And that's all about that. Fascinating. <laughs> Thank you. I, I'd like to ask you about some of those points, but for completion's sake, the classification that you've described and that I asked you about is characteristic of the new schools, as they say, the Sarma schools. And it seems the usual Nyingma classification is a little bit different. For the sake mm -hmm. of completeness, could you perhaps summarize their, their classification system? Right, well, the Nyingma system isn't really different it just takes those four and further subdivides. And we can always do that in any system. So when they talk about the, the nine yanas, they divide them into nine. And so still we see Kriya, Charya and Yoga Tantra there. And on top of Yoga, we see two more Mahayoga, and uh, the, so these these uh, these are often in the new the system the new systems because we could say when they came to Tibet about when Nyingma came to Tibet Tibet was burned and so much of Nyingma doctrine is written in the language of the old Bunpo tradition 
borrows from the old Bunpo tradition. And in the Bunpo tradition, the nine ways of bun was a very popular category. And so I think they divided into nine because of that, but that's just a personal opinion. I couldn't document that exactly, but uh, Snellgrove, great British Indologist, you could say, is of that opinion. And I tend to agree with it. There's no reason to stop at four. It's just, you know, one of the great Indian um, writers, and he came in India later than Padmasambhava, probably eighth century, I think, whereas Padmasambhava, ninth century, so 800s, whereas Padmasambhava is coming to Tibet. And now, now Padmasambhava, when he comes to Tibet, we often say he brought Buddhism to Tibet, but when he came to Tibet, Buddhism was already the national religion of Tibet when he came. So he didn't really bring Buddhism to Tibet. He brought his lineages of Tibet to a Tibet which already had been nationally, formally Buddhist for well over a hundred years. And so we can say probably that classification into the nine yanas started really from the days of the early translators sort of to fit things into the Banpo schemata because the purpose of course of any translation into any language is to make that uh, material meaningful to its readers. And so uh, Snellgrove is of the opinion that the nine ways of Ban may have acted as that inspiration for dividing into um, nine in Tibet. So Shravaka Yana, Bodhisattva Yana, the two sort of standard sutra ways, that's very common in all ways. So when we say four classes of Tantra, the nine categories aren't just of Tantra, but they're also of Buddhism as a whole. So Shravaka Yana and Bodhisattva Yana. So we could say those are outer and inner. Uh, Hinayana, Mahayana, if you want, for if you're not afraid of, to use the word Hinayana as something not meaning a, a derogatory term for certain schools of Buddhism, used in the sense of Lame Gyu and Ogyu, higher tantras and lower tantras. Um, it's not a meaning, sort of the, the basic level of practice, you could say, and the Bodhisattva, the universal, the idea of Ik. Yana, all paths, all roads lead to Rome. <laughs> Everyone is going to enlightenment, even if they don't know it, even if they're a totally kind of, you know, a, say a New Guinea or an Amazonian headhunter at the moment. That's just part of their pilgrimage to enlightenment. <laughs> uh, Adolf Hitler was just on his way to enlightenment, just taking a little bit of a side distraction detour, you could say. So Nagarjuna's Ikyana expression, oh, one path, one path in the sense that all beings are on the path to enlightenment, regardless of where they are at that particular time in that particular incarnation. And then dividing the, the, the four classes of Tantra into seven by taking highest yoga tantra and some sometimes we see it said that you know the the 
what is it? Mahayoga. What's the other Sanskrit name? Anu Yoga, Anati Yoga. Anu, Anu, yeah, Anati. Yeah, I forgot Anu. I, I once had a very wonderful Nepali lady friend by the name of Anu. That's, we had a bitter separation. That might be why I couldn't remember Anu <laughs> Yoga. <laughs> But anyway, we see it said in some commentaries that Mahayoga, Anayoga, these are like the male divisions of Tantra into male Tantras and female Tantras in the later Indian classifiers, you could say. That the earlier classification really is coming from roughly 630, 650, and through the 700s. That was kind of a way of talking about the totality of Buddhism coming to Tibet in those periods. And then uh, Ati Yoga really being a kind of a separation of Buddhism into a kind of a Mahamudra side, you could say, beyond, beyond specifics, uh, sort, of a, sort of a formless, sort of Buddhism that can be fit into any of the other eight quite conveniently without having to change whatsoever. So sometimes, you know, when we see it read that someone is a Dzogchen teacher, Ati there being, Dzogchen being a, not a very literal translation of Ati, <laughs> but uh, someone's a Dzogchen teacher, it doesn't really mean they're teaching the ninth yana. Usually, often in different schools of Buddhism, we, we talk about Tawa Chupagamba, view, meditation, and uh, activity, but you could say general practice, something like that. So Tawa there means a kind of an attitude or a way of looking, a kind of a philosophical stance. So some people translate Tawa as philosophy. So when we say Ati Yoga, there's Dzogchen. And sometimes we'll see it saying Dzogchen is the highest teaching of the Buddha. We don't see that said in any new school of Buddhism, um, basically because they don't use that classification. So for instance, in Dalai Lama school, we say the highest teaching of Buddhism and Marpa uh, Lotsuwa and Kargyupa say highest teaching of the Buddha is the clear light teaching of the Guya Samasha Tantra. But if we were to divide Guya Samasha, Chakra Samvara, and the clear light teaching into three yanas, <laughs> then we would say one is Maha Yoga, one is Anu Yoga, and one is Ati Yoga. That, uh, Guya Samaja would be Maha Yoga and Chakra Samvara would be Anu Yoga and Clear Light would be Ati, Ati Yoga. So, Ati, so the, the division into nine yanas in, in no way uh, uh, has nothing in it which is not in the four classes of Tantra because when we say four other than the Shravaka and Bodhisattva yana but in all highest yoga tantras, in all the new tantras, the sarma tantras, uh, they, 
make the very strong emphasis that to practice Tantra at all, you have to have refuge bodhicitta, three higher trainings from the Shravaka Yana or Hinayana, and you must have the Tabdam Shara, Upaya and Pragna teaching from the Mahayana. So if we look at the, all the new schools, they equally have nine yanas. They just don't use that way of discussion. Uh, now, if we ask other possibilities for why that is so, the new tantras almost exclusively come from central India. You know, Bhagaya is very important, Odanta Puri, Vikrama Shila, and then the Mahasiddhas, most of those Mahasiddhas being Central Indian. In other words, Nepal, Bengal, Orissa, very, very important areas. So those areas are the regions that essentially um, speak about Hinayana, Mahayana, outer, inner, and secret, and the secret being the four classes of tantras. Now, if we look at Nyingma and their later codification, we Canadians say codification, but Americans say codification, like as in the word codification, codification. <laughs> their, their codification, of course, Bunpo comes from Persia. You know, this is stated by the Bonpos themselves. Tumpa Sherab came from, when he came to Tibet and brought, brought Bun to Tibet, he came from Tuzig, which is the old name for the Persian Empire. And so we can say that Bunpo and Yingma are more influenced in the way of discussing and codifying the Buddhist lineages. And they're more connected to the codifications that were being used. And we could say Afghanistan, Gilgut, maybe Khotan, and what generally we, we refer to as the East Persian Empire, when the East Persian Empire was all still quite strongly Buddhist. Bamiyan is kind of an example, right? Everyone knows of it because of the Taliban using artillery to blow up some of the Buddhist statues. So Nyingma and the Bunpo both have very strong influences from those areas. And in fact, you know, the old Bunpo stronghold you know, prior to Songsen Gampo was the Shangshung north of Mount Kailash. So if we go back to Snellgrove, he thinks that much of what we think of as Bon today was in fact Buddhist coming from pre-Songsengampo times, coming in from Afghanistan, Northwest Pakistan and Eastern Iran in today's world, uh, today's political boundaries. And so those nine, that nine, ninefold classification was there now, also, if we look in India, we do see a nine categories of the doctrine, which was a popular way of discussing, you know, everything taught by the Buddha, putting them in nine ways, but that doesn't really involve so much the tantras. 
it's more to do with the literary transmission, the Lung Beichu rather than the Tok Beichu. Although I think one of those is Upadesha, meaning sort of oral transmissions. Yeah, so, you know, there is nothing in all schools of Tibetan Buddhism, including Bun, we can say are 99% the same in those, uh, in the general structure of things. 99% of statistics are made up on the spot and I just made up that statistic. <laughs> but they're at least 95% the same. And uh, the 5% difference, of course, in Bunpo, they use some mandalas which look different than the Tibetan ones and their translations come from the Eastern Persian Empire rather than the Sanskrit versions of versions from uh, you know, Bengal and so forth. So we see linguistic differences and uh, structural differences, some form differences, because the visualizations in generation stage are, of course, mainly oral transmission from visions of particular teachers. The essence is taking the three kayas as the path, kusum lam care. But the specifics, any Master lineage master in history can change specifics to suit his or her fancy <laughs> because it's just a symbol of a process. And so the only concern a teacher has is the enlightenment of his or her students. So uh, he or she might adapt any specific mandala, visual, if you will, detail to suit whatever that person, that lineage master thinks is the most appropriate. Completion stage in all the different tantras is pretty much the same with, of course, difference in specific details. That's fascinating. And I'd like to ask you a bit about the um, modifications and customizations a little later. But first of all, in your preamble, translator's preamble, the introduction to your translation of the third Dalai Lama's Tantric Yogas of the Bodhisattva of Compassion, you write, the third Dalai Lama divides the training into seven stages. The preliminaries, the yoga with symbols, the yoga without symbols, the yoga between sessions, the yoga of sleep, the yoga for consciousness transference, the yoga for attaining enlightenment in the bardo. The second and third of these, you continue, the yoga with symbols and the yoga without symbols are the Kriya Yoga and Charya versions of what the fourth class of Tantra calls the generation and completion stage yogas, and thus, together with the four, could be considered the main body of the training. The fifth, sixth, and seventh could also be called supplementary or branch trainings. So I'm curious, what are the key differences, if there are any, between the Kerim stages of the four classes of Tantra, and how do the Kriya, Charya, and Yoga Tantra versions of the Tsogrim compare to the Anuttara Yoga versions? The uh, Kriya Charya Tantra are both characterized by a process very different than highest yoga tantra. Highest yoga tantra, as I mentioned, Kusum Lamkir, taking three occasions as three kayas, Dharma Kaya, Samboga Kaya, and Dharmana Kaya, which I very skillfully wove into a promotion of the Canelo Billy Joe Sanders boxing match. <laughs> Uh, Kriya Tantra doesn't follow that format in a linguistic way or in a formal way. 
rather the generation stays there is often known as Hlagu, Hlatruk, uh, sorry, Hlatruk, excuse me. Six and nine look almost the same, except one's upside down in English and Tibetan look different. So the six, the six sacred natures, you could say, the six deities, the six gods, the six enlightenments, Hla there, Deva, actually meaning something like our sacred nature. So the question is the same, right? How do we stay in touch with our sacred nature as we go about the li our general life as bank manager, taxi driver, carpenter, uh, vegetable salesman, um, houseboat dweller in a luxury canal in England? <laughs> How do we maintain through all the highs and lows that life throws upon us, a sense of our sacred nature, our spiritual essence, while encountering all of the vicissitudes, you know, girlfriends coming and going, boyfriends coming and going, husbands and wives divorces, and kids coming and going, and parents and friends living and dying, and all of these sort of things. So in the highest yoga tantra, this Kusam Lamkir taking three occasions as three kayas is, you could say, the actual yoga. And we use mantra to kind of reinforce that as a kind of a tool for maintaining that focus. Now, in Kriya Charya Tantra, and I don't like to discuss yoga tantra here because I'm not so comfortable <laughs> with yoga. Tantra being separated from highest yoga tantra. I think only uh, Indian classifier and the Tibetans who follow Indian classifiers without contemplating it very deeply will have much of a sense of that. But um, anyway, uh, for me, we could read quite easily say three classes of tantra. That's why when you said three classes, I thought, oh, Steve is slipping into a visionary state. He's reading my <laughs> mind. <laughs> So Kriya Tantra, both of what they call Latruk, the six sacred natures. When we do our practice, the first thing we do is go and we dissolve the whole universe into light and then light into our body and then the body into our heart chakra and our heart chakra into light. And this is known as the ultimate deity. La, the ultimate God, the ultimate Buddha. In other words, this is our sort of equivalent and highest yoga tantra to taking clear light of death, clear light of sleep, or clear light of orgasmic experience, if you will, as Dharmakaya, as a pointer to the nature of our formless Buddha nature, our Dharmakaya mind, our already Buddha quality, already a Buddha quality. So we do that more complexedly in highest yoga tantra and in yoga tantra and kriya tantra. We just do it as a simple zoom, light, zoom, light, zoom, light, zoom, light. <laughs> so we just kind of do in that way. Uh, and then we rest in that as a kind of an emptiness meditation or a Mahamudra meditation. Now, for instance, in Yingma Urban, doing that practice, this is kind of your time 
you might do Dzogchen, for instance, or if you're a Sarma, you might, a new school person, meaning any non-Yingma school, then uh, you might do Mahamudra. And if you do it specifically in the Kriya Tantra, you do it as Kriya Mahamudra, which is simply resting the mind in the cell tongue, cell tongue, the radiance and the formlessness. And uh, so that term is used very much in Kriya Mahamudra and in, in this practice of the six sacred natures. Then we come out of that sacred nature as a sound. In other words, when you sit in the sacred nature of clear light, if we were to combine this, say, with highest yoga tantra, taking Sambhogakaya as the path, when you sit in clear light of moment of death being like Dharmakaya, so after you achieve, at the moment of enlightenment, the person, their mind falls into infinite Dharmakaya, like a drop of water in the ocean, becoming one with the ocean. You, you lose all sense of any form momentarily. And then you saw, wow, it's so nice to be infinite. A drop in the ocean, a drop no more. <laughs> but eventually your bodhisattva precept to be of benefit to all beings stirs a kind. So in other words, the power of compassion comes in, you could say, and says, hey, wow, here I am in Dharmakaya, but what about that guru Viking guy, Steve James? He's on a 10th level bodhisattva, but he still has at least a millimeter to enlightenment. <laughs> and so in highest yoga tantra, you emanate out as Sambhogakaya, then as Nirmanakaya. But in the Kriya, we go through six stages to go from, <clears throat> uh, from we could say from Arupakaya to Rupakaya, from formless to fully form, <laughs> something like that. The formless realm to the realm of enlightenment form. And the first of that is the stirring of energy, which resonates with a sound. Pum, ah, <laughs> usually like that. And pum being kind, you could say our male aggressive side of bodhicitta, what's known in sutra yana as uh, a sort of conventional bodhicitta, relative bodhicitta, sometimes as easily deceived bodhicitta because it's easily falls under the spell of duality. <laughs> And ah, being ultimate bodhicitta, kind of mixing in emptiness with compassion, compassion with a sense of nothing is what it appears. And this comes out and manifests as a symbol in chakrasam, and in, uh, in Avalokita, as far as case, this is usually a lotus, which is a symbol of compassion, wisdom of Shenrazi, like a lotus grows in mud, but is not stained by the mud. If it were a, a, a Kriya Tantra in the Bajra family, 
rather than lotus, it might be a Vajra. And in the chakra family, it might be, say, a wheel, <laughs> an eight-spoked wheel. And so this is a little bit like going in the direction of taking uh, evolution, evolving nature, bardo, dreams, and so forth as Sambhogakaya. Exiting pure formlessness into the world of form in a kind of a symbolic form. And uh, often that symbol will then be marked by letter on top of the lotus if it's Tara will be a syllable tum, if it's Amitayas will be a red hri, if a shenrazi a white hri, and so on. And so that's known as the syllable sacred nature. What is my sacred nature? Sound-wise, if I go he or tum, or in Pajra family, often as hung. It sort of touches or resonates some kind of very subtle quality in the depth of our soul. <laughs> I was just watching a neurological conference on the mysterious power of sound over water. There's a research, I think, being done in the in a university in, if I'm not, it's either in Lancashire, I think it's in Lancashire, but anyway, one of the British universities. If you take a glass of water and put it on top of a certain kind of a sound speaker and you put sound in it, the molecules in the water actually change and make form. And you can put some kind of very light grains of sand-like material on top of a uh, a skin that will vibrate. And that sound will cause these to come out in very particular mandala-like patterns. I was very impressed by this. Although the actual thing was on, you know, how, how uh, shamanic traditions in ancient societies use sound and psychedelics to transform the relationship between mind and matter. And that was a kind of a neurological look at it. And, uh, but the physiology of sound and the, the neurological impact <laughs> of uh, all of that kind of situation. So when we go hung or he, which are a tongue. Now we may just be visualizing it, but when you visualize it, it's as though you're supposed to be in your mind not just seeing the form, but the, the, the thing you're, the tum which you are visualizing or the three is resonating with that sound. So it's a little bit like with the water, when you go tum. And it was very amazing watching illustrations of this with in an actual scientific library. These total mandala shapes appeared on top of the on top of the skin, if you will, holding the grains of sand and often in five shapes, very much like many 
Buddhist mandalas have a circle at the center and the circle in each of the direction. This happened with many of them. And the water again looked very much like a mandala shapes emerging in the water. I was actually talking about physiologically, the sound also compresses the compresses water molecules. In other words, the reason why the water takes a different shape isn't just that it's shaking, but the actual molecules are being compressed. Their shape is being changed <laughs> temporarily by the sound. So the third level, when we go tum or three, and there's nothing else in the universe, just the tum or the three. And again, this is touching our sacred nature. This is, a, this is our third law. This is our third godliness, if you will, if we want to translate la, deva as God, or our third dimension or frequency of our enlightenment, natural enlightenment nature. And so in this way we go, I won't bore people by going through all six levels because then it becomes too long. And then you would have to make huge offerings to me, donations for my kindness in giving such a transmission. <laughs> but essentially, then this Hri sends out lights and uh, or the Tam or the Hung or whatever, D if it's Manjushri sends out lights. And well, often the translations will say, make offerings to all the Buddhas, but actually the word Chupa Puja in Sanskrit means delight, delight all Buddhas, make all Buddhas happy. In other words, how do we really touch the natural enlightenment quality of the universe? It's by essentially resonating with that natural enlightenment quality, isn't it? It's a little bit like uh, when an opera singer sings in one place, a glass in another part of the room can suddenly go pop. Sort of the resonance created by this universal joy or something like that. The light goes out and touches all the Buddhas and the delight just sort of creates this transformation. And it comes back to us in a great wave of joy, a great wave of sense of goodness, a sense of wonder of being and so forth. And we send out another wave of light and we touch all living beings. And touching all living beings, it sort of brushes them with this joy. So it sweeps over the Sudan. So just for a moment, those pirates out, you know, kidnapping oil tankers feel a little bit, little, little more enlightened. <laughs> And, you know, the Israelis and the Palestinians shooting at one another across the fence of the Gaza division strip. Just for a moment, they relax and feel a little more enlightened. And uh, everything from bugs to 10th level bodhisattvas <laughs> feels just for a moment a kind of a cool breeze of enlightenment. I think it's also important when we do that, it's our compassionate content connectivity with all beings, regardless of their goodness, badness, or indifference, their seeming likability, their seeming unlikability, or seeming can be overlooked. 
quality. And then we transform and become the form of the deity, the form of the God, the form of the Buddha. So we, our body becomes like Shenrazi, like Tara, looks like, but it's kind of like still a little bit of an empty shell. So we have to really empower it. And then from the Hri at our heart or from whatever Hung or Di or Tum, again, we send out lights and it brings back all the light and forces, past, present and future of the 10 directions. And ho. And they all flow through us and into us. And we become completely unified with the natural enlightenment quality of the entire universe. It's like me and the tree, we get along. <laughs> me and the iceberg floating down the St. Lawrence River. <laughs> me and that lobster fisherman down on the beach below me. We're okay. <laughs> the sacred nature flows with full force. And sometimes we'll also send out the lights again, bring back all the power deities because, well, yeah, I feel one with that tree and connected with those clouds, but uh, I still feel uh, uh, a little bit on the feeble side, a little wimpy, a little bit of a wimp still left in me. <laughs> So we call back and oh, Mabashikata, Samya, Shriya, Ah, Hung, and all the deities of power, empowering or of power come and pour liquids and they flow into my body. And just every cell of my body becomes activated with this pure enlightenment power. And it surges and surges and surges and overflows. And of a Shenrazi, then the overflow is so big that like milk pouring out of a bottle when you boil it or something, it just overflows and forms into a Rigidako in Tibetan Rigdak, Lord of the Family. So Amitaya Sartara transforms into Amitabha Buddha. So now these my six qualities of enlightenment. I turn to my heart, the Hri, Omani Pami Hung, and I do that Omani Pami Hung mantra practice in particular ways as, as given in the oral transmission, which I will not say here because it is oral and this will be a recording. Ha ha, ha ha. <laughs> but with all Kriya Tantras, they're practiced in a very sim similar way. And therefore, when you understand one, you understand all. Therefore, we have certain kinds of them gathered into whole collections like the Sarka Gatsa and Kilkor Gatsa. And uh, I guess those two being, Kilkor Gatsa being one of the very big ones, Rinchen Gatsa. Sometimes they're called Gatsa, sometimes they're called Gatso. But anyway, Gatsa, the ocean of them or the hundreds of them like that. And um, the format is much the same in each. The enlightenment quality in each different Tantra and Kriya is a little bit different. With Shenrazi, the emphasis is on cultivating 
compassion, with manjushri on cultivating or bringing out the cream of one's natural wisdom nature out of the milk of one's being, you could say. <laughs> and with Tara, bringing out one's liberating and liberated energies and uh, Amitayas, one's natural healthfulness, wellness and healing quality. Wherever you go, people feel can feel that healing quality. And where you merely look at someone and go, and suddenly they go, oh my God, did I just take an overdose of vitamins? <laughs> so in that way, the six deities of the first stage, then at the end of the practice, everything goes back to emptiness and we finish with, uh, again, a Kriya Mahamudra practice. So all the mandala, all everything dissolves into light, into me and me as the deity, into the Hri at my heart or whatever. And that itself um, dissolves into cell tongue, the radiant, infinite, the infinite radiance, but literally emptiness, radiant emptiness, but a little empty of what? Empty of finiteness, empty of aspectness, empty of a specific form, sp empty of specificity, specificity, <laughs> something like that. Now the completion stage is a kind of a specialized Kriya Mahamudra or Charya Mahamudra. We could say something like that. It's a kind of a specialized Mahamudra. So only in yoga and highest yoga tantra do we see Kundalini being introduced or Chandali Tumo being introduced. Now, Snellgrove, who made a wonderful translation of one of the two main yoga tantras, points out that he doesn't like the fact that it's not given a highest yoga tantra qualification. And he'd like to argue with that Indian scholar who in the eighth century set it as a separate tantra <laughs> because there's almost everything in it that you would find in a highest yoga tantra. Uh, Tibetan, you know, Tibetans prefer to say following the Indian system like to say it's a difference between kissing and stroking and full penetration and orgasm. The difference is that big. <laughs> they put it like that, but Snellgrove says, I don't get it. <laughs> and I must admit, I haven't studied the yoga tantras in any great depth. So I'm not really qualified to comment one way or the other, but uh, you know, often these initiations are given in a kind of a general way as a blessing. And so over the years, someone like me who was older than the hills <laughs> has received hundreds and hundreds of empowerments. But in terms of practices, usually our, we will practice what our um, root gurus or our close, our heart teachers suggest, our heart lamas suggest, and what feels best for us. So my own favorite practices have always been Yamantaka. From the beginning, I got that from Kevji Ling Doji Chang back in uh, Christmas of 1972 or early January 1973 between the empowerment and then and the next year, Chakrasambara from uh, 
Kyabji Trichung Dorji Chang, the Dalai Lama's two great gurus. Others like Shenrazi, well, I got that from Kala Rinpoche first, the former great Karma Kargyu Lama and his incarnation often referred to as head of modern day Shengpa Kargyu. Uh, and of course, I also received many, that many times from Dalai Lama Amitayas. Um, it's one of my favorites. I first received that from Sakya Trizen Rinpoche, head of Sakya school, but also received from many other lamas, including Gyawa uh, Rinpoche, Dalai Lama, and so forth. So uh, in terms of those, the division between yoga tantra, highest yoga tantra, because I haven't done much practice of yoga tantra other than the blessing transmission, then I don't really comment on whether Snell Grove is right or wrong, but I do like the difference between smooching and petting the high school approach to the more mature making love approach. I kind of like that metaphor <laughs> in, in terms of my ability to clarify <laughs> the meaning of those hidden words. No, <laughs> we'll leave that out. Only will I speak those words to the highest bidder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Amazing. Thank you very much, Glenn. That's that was fantastic. Fabulous. That uh, Kriya Yoga exposition. Mm -hmm. I'm uh, aware of the time and I'm wondering about your time. I have actually three and a half more questions, which could be an episode in themselves as a follow up, I think. Mm. So why don't we do it as a two parter? As you wish. Uh, just before ending, I'll just say a few things on those seven categories that he uses, but just so uh... Page 83, I'll go to page 83 on it and just look at what those, you know, because he divides the six yoga, the, he divides the uh, Shenrazi Kriya Tantra into those seven. There we are, yeah. Okay, I should say that with this, with this Shenrazi and my little text on on uh, the Shenrazi practice as presented in the Dalai Lama's on Tantra. What is it? What is the new title? Uh, From the Heart of Shenrazi. From the Heart of Shenrazi, yeah. Uh, as is pointed out in that, and as there's, there's two main Shenrazi lineages popular in Tibet. One is the 11, thousand armed 11, head form, which was comes from the female mystic Gelongma Pelmo, as she's often known, and which is the basis of the 16-day fasting practice, which is done in Sagadawa. So many people throughout Central Asia for the last week and for the first 16 days of this fourth month, the Sagadawa month, one day they have one meal before noon and drink a ton of liquid during the day. And the next day they have zero food and zero liquid. And the seventh Dalai Lama made that a national holiday for those wanting to take it. So anyone who wanted to do the Nyungne, uh, their bosses couldn't say, you have to go to work. <laughs> so they really promoted it as a national practice. And that made every monastery in Tibet start doing it. So every time, for instance, I go to Chimpuk, the Guru Rinpoche caves behind Samye Monastery, 
all of the nuns in retreat at the top of that mountain, there's always 25 or 50 of them doing that practice. And most monasteries and temples and nunneries and so on throughout Central Asia do that kind of, that Gelongma uh, Palmo, Bhikshuni Shri transmission in connection with the fasting practice. And the other is known as the transmission of the Mahasiddhas. So the transmission of the Mahasiddhas, the most popular in Tibet is Chimpupa, the Mahasiddhas, the tailor. And he combines Kriya Tantra with highest Yoga Tantra. And this became quite popular in later day India as a, when, as a way for people to sort of pack practices into a session. So you've got a Shenrazi initiation, you've got a Chakra Sambhara initiation. How do you do both of those in one session for ease of practice? So some of these fusion practices, you could say emerged. It's a little bit like going to, a, in, to England where you go to a pub and they'll have a fusion curry. <laughs> in British style, overcooked veggies with a nice big chunk of beef with the Indian style of little chunks of beef and overcooked veggies with a bunch of curry powder thrown in and a bunch of liquid and boil it for. <laughs> so they had these kind of fusion practices. And this one in particular that's in that book combines that quite a bit with uh, the, the um, Chakra Samvara lineage like, coming through the same master. But when it's written about in Tibetan, they only ever mention the reference and say, get it from the oral tradition. So it was not the tradition to elucidate it. So just to go through what those seven are. Which Chakra Samvara lineage is that? Well, the name of this particular Mahasiddha is Chimpupa. Oh. Mahasiddha Taylor been known by his profession. He achieved enlightenment sewing. I could use him right now. One of my shirts needs some sewing. <laughs> <laughs> so preliminaries is always there. Get the right, right initiations and so on and receive the correct teachings and practices. So that's always there with every tantric lineage. Preliminary, some texts will also say to have, you know, done the outer and inner, the Hinayana, Mahayana, uh, but here he just makes a short. Then yoga with symbols, which he does in a fair amount of depth with the visualization, yoga without symbols. So often like in six yogas of Naropa, that would be, you could say like, like a illusory body and clear light yogas that which is in the six yogas of Naropa or six yogas of Naguma, those are the two actual enlightenment methods. In the six yogas, Tumo is the kind of the basis for exploring illusory body yoga and clear light yoga. So here you could say, these are the Kriya yoga equivalents in the language. Yoga between sessions, everyone has that. And, uh, Sometimes we translate that as between sessions, but in Tibetan it's Jacob. During your meditation session, if you're doing that sadhana, you're supposed to connect with your six sacred natures. 
And then when you finish, you go back into emptiness and then you come out as generosity and you go about your life. So jetab means after getting it. In other words, during your meditation session, you gain a certain kind of power or strength or clarity or feeling or perspective or something like that. So maintaining that between sessions. So for instance, when we're doing dream yoga training during meditation sessions and six yogas will stimulate whichever of the chakras is indicated by our progress. And between sessions walking around, we'll go, this is a dream, this is a dream, but everything we see. So when we're sleeping and we dream, we'll say, hey, this is a dream. We'll wake up in our dreams like that. So, or if you're doing emptiness, during emptiness in the Lojong, it says, you know, meditate on all phenomena as dreams and uh, uh, emptiness of mind and what is it? Emptiness of emptiness. And then just rest in the, the kunshi, the foundation, rest the mind in emptiness. And between sessions, be like an illusory child. In other words, after you have a sense of emptiness from your practice and what emptiness and illusory parents between sessions, how to carry what you got in the chetal. So we call between sessions sometimes in translation for clarity, because if we say after you got it, people may not get the meaning, right? And then yoga of sleep is there in every tantra, every practice, how to go to sleep nicely is there in every practice. You know, so if you're practicing in Hinayana Mahayana, there'll be some suggestions for how to prepare for sleep at night. So here, of course, they look at a method which is a little bit drawing from the Chakrasambara system of the white and red drops and bringing them together in particular ways, right? Mm -hmm. And the sixth, the yoga of consciousness transference, how to die consciously, preparing for conscious death. And so again, in the Mahasiddha Chimbupa's lineage, this is again, bringing Poa a little bit from the Chakrasambara, sort of six yogas tradition, if you will, but uh, sort of mixing this back into uh, a Kriya context. And uh, Bardo Yoga. So again, all highest yoga tantras, you know, clear light of death is in the sadhana as Dharmakaya, taking the Bardo as Sambhogakaya and taking rebirth as Nirmanakaya. In completion stage becomes a method for enlightenment in this lifetime. And if we don't achieve enlightenment in one lifetime at the time of death, either project your mind out of your body bypassing the bardo as in Poa, or enter the dangerous bardo and try to achieve enlightenment in the bardo as is the sort of uh, essence, the substance of the Tibetan book of the dead is sort of written for people who think they can do that. So many Tibetan uh, tantras are sort of, we can talk about those six or seven sort of kind of different aspects of the practice. But uh, I just wanted to add that at the end that those kind of ways of speaking of practice, generation and completion stage, 
and what to do between sessions, we could say these three are how you achieve enlightenment in this lifetime. Also, sleep and dream we could put into achieving enlightenment in this lifetime. Then Poa, Bardo, bye-bye, cruel world. Better luck next time. Okay, we finished there. Gawa di yurida shenrose wan truk yone droa chikyum malo pa te sala gobar show. Bye-bye. Ben Mullen, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.